Welcome to another episode of Poetry Says Everybody. My name's Alice. Hope you're well wherever you're listening from. In this episode, I get to talk to a writer who is more towards the beginning of their journey, and this is something that I'd been wanting to do for a while. And as I was turning that thought over in my mind, something just landed in my lap. I was contacted by Winnie Dunn, who is the powerhouse behind a literary movement out of Western Sydney called Sweatshop. And Winnie wrote to me and said, would you like a copy of our new anthology, Sweatshop Women? And would you like to talk to one of the poets from the workshop? And I hadn't heard anything about Sweatshop before, but I had in my mind this vague notion that there was something really cool and exciting happening out in Western Sydney. So I was very intrigued. But Sweatshop is much more than a group of people getting together to create anthologies. It's described as a literary movement. It was established a couple of years ago in 2018. And along with running writers collectives where women of color come together and share their work and critique each other's work, they also do things like running programs in high schools. They have partnerships with a whole bunch of publications around Australia and their focus is on giving skills to writers through that critical feedback and through that discussion. So it's a really exciting movement and I haven't heard of many other things like it operating at the moment. So what I got to do in this episode was talk to one of the contributors to the anthology whose name is Gayathri Naya and Gayathri has never actually read her poetry anywhere outside the workshop before so these are the first recordings of her work which I was very, very excited to capture. And along with talking about how Sweatshop works and how that has been supporting Guy 3 to write, we talk a bit about the broader context of what it is to write in a community of women of color, some of the pressures and demands on that writing, how Guy 3 was a little bit nervous to come to her first Sweatshop workshop, but how it's now become a writing community that's really sustaining her. So I'm really excited to get a little window into this world and to share it with you today. Thanks for listening. I have to admit first off that I had never heard of Sweatshop before I was contacted by Winnie. But I did have this vague sense in my mind that somewhere out in Western Sydney, some people were doing some really cool work. And yeah, and and since I've heard about Sweatshop, I've done a bit of research and it seems like it is so much more than the anthology that I have here sitting on my desk. It's a, yes, it's a writing program, but it also has a relationship to high schools. There are book launches. There's relationships to existing publishers like Southerly, But the thing that most impressed me about it is there's a recognition, it seems, in this structure that, like, it's not enough to just shove people in a room and say, hey, write a poem, which can be a bit of a dead end. It seems like there is a real emphasis on giving people skills. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit to start with about your experience with Sweatshop and how that's worked for you. Yeah, for sure. Um... I had also heard about Sweatshop, I think through other writing friends, but to be honest, I was a little scared (laughs) of attending and I don't know, perhaps its reputation had preceded it for me in terms of, it had a very good reputation, but a little bit scary to attend workshops. 
because I'd heard that they were very intense and quite critical potentially um, and quite strong, <laughs> strong-minded, I guess, uh, people. And you had, to go, you had to go to the workshop yourself and read your writing, which I think is quite vulnerable at any time. But to go as a new writer or someone who hasn't done that before and be, be essentially... Um, criticized not not criticized in a bad way but had have it critiqued it can be quite confronting so I think I'd heard I was a little bit nervous about sweatshop initially but I'd heard through a friend that there was a women's and um, women, people who identify as women writing group starting in 2018 and she actually encouraged me one of my friends Cherie Joseph who's in the second anthology that you have to attend and I wouldn't have gone without her support I don't think and I'm so glad I did <laughs> because yes it is intense but it's honestly the most uh, how do I explain it uh, supportive and encompassing room to be in with other women of color who yes they might be critical but they actually really care about the work you're doing and want you to do better so yeah I've never really experienced anything like it but I guess I'll go back a bit more about to what Sweatshop is. So you were saying earlier that it's much more than just a writing group or a publishing house or a company. It's, it's essentially a lit literacy movement based in Western Sydney. And its purpose really is to empower culturally and linguistically diverse communities through reading, writing, and also critical thinking. So I think part of that is really adding adding to the, uh, I don't know, knowledge <laughs> in Australia and around the world, I guess. Yeah, and some of the other things they do is providing research, training, mentoring and employment opportunities for emerging and established writers. It just sounds like such an amazing thing to build and to be part of. And what I love so much about what you're describing is that I was talking to another poet about this the other week about what I felt was a, a severe lack of person-to-person -person critical conversation amongst poets in Australia right now and how wonderful it would be to be in a room where people felt enough trust and, and quite honestly love to say that line doesn't work <laughs> and to not lose their minds over that um, but to know that that's coming from a place of I want you to be better so I'm, I'm wondering when you describe that um, is there a structure for that feedback when you guys are sitting in the room or does it just kind of come organically or what does it look like yeah I mean there is a structure I guess but it's quite informal I mean the first year that we started, we actually were very lucky to have um, really well, well-respected Aboriginal and culturally diverse writers come to our workshops. So we had Alison Whitaker, who I listened to your amazing podcast <laughs> of earlier. Um, we had um, Michelle Law. She listened to one of my poems, which was really scary, <laughs> but also amazing. Yeah. So I guess the process is generally that you try and bring writing to each workshop, new writing where possible. And we sit together and we, you'll go through your, your writing and it's actually often it's done line by line, which can be a little confronting, I think, because, you know, <laughs> 
you might have someone, um, yeah, basically asking you to stop or asking you about a certain word or asking you specific, yeah, basically to give more context or question why you've chosen something. So that, that can be a little bit, I think a little bit confronting if you haven't done it before, but like you were saying, I think because it's such a space where you feel loved, you feel, you trust each other. And I think, I don't know, the women that I write with, they have such grace and humility (laughs) when getting that feedback and giving that feedback. Like I just, I've never really, I'm so grateful for it. And yeah, I feel very privileged to be part of the group for that Mm. reason. Yeah, I love that though because it's and the only poetry workshop I've ever been a part of. I think it was a fairly standard process in that you know you would you would read a poem and everyone might have a copy of it and people would like pull out certain lines and like this this word doesn't work this line doesn't work something like that. Sometimes that would happen but more often than not it would be talking about the general sense that the poem gives you. And what I love about the process you're describing is that it acknowledges that a poem rests on word choice, line structure, like it is, it actually matters that much, like what goes into a line. And I also, yeah, that that supportive space where people are actually honestly saying what they what they think, like that's that's a truly special thing. And like you said, being able to write with people it's great to sort of bust that myth of like poets uh, are lonely creatures. <laughs> right. <laughs> in solitude. No way. Yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, without a doubt, I would not be able to write without that support. I don't think, I mean, I mean, I, I would have probably written, but not to the level that I feel like I'm capable of at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you did you write much poetry before you started going to the workshop? So I I was I think I wrote poetry since I was a kid. <laughs> so, you know, at school and that kind of thing. I think I I think this is kind of hilarious. I was like shortlisted for the Dorothy McKellar prize <laughs> in high school or maybe primary school, that type of thing, and it makes me laugh now because I mean, yeah, it's not the type of writing I'm reading at the moment, <laughs> put it that way. But yeah, it's, yeah, I did creative writing at university. Um, I was meant to do an honours in creative writing and never did. And then I just stopped writing. And it was something that I, I thought I would always keep up if I didn't pursue it in a more formal sense. But that never really happened. So after university, I probably stopped writing really for maybe 10 maybe not 10 years, but at least five, six, seven years. And that's when I started going to sweatshop again. Yeah. In the last two years. Yeah. It's so great that you just got that, that structure to sustain you. And, and I don't know, like last, last six months for me, it's been like a total blank time. Like very little has been written. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's great to, to write in community because it means that when you have moments like that, somebody can sort of, yeah, sustain you. That group can sustain you. Yeah. I don't think I would have been writing if it wasn't for the support and the structure. Yeah. Yeah. It really helped. Uh, Might be a good moment to introduce a poem of yours if you're comfortable to do that. 
yes um i i have never read <laughs> my poetry before like this so apologies in advance <laughs> no, I'm no, 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 no. this is a this is a huge honor for me this is oh. yeah so you wouldn't have read you haven't read it outside the no no not really no um yeah so um but i have yeah i've been trying to practice <laughs> see how we go but yeah it's an honor to be here now um i'll just i'll read i was gonna read um one of the one of the pieces from the latest anthology um it's called baby's breath and carnations after i finished my big shop at coles i walked past the bougie flower shop where the roses might as well be plastic and the small bunches of seasonal flowers die after one week I head downstairs to get extra vegetables and fruit, organic ones, because I'm sure the imperfect pick at Harris Farm tastes better. I feel the avocados before I buy them. Two small green ones for $4.99 or one large one for $4. They're always either too soft or too hard. So I buy flowers instead. Baby's breath and carnations. They come wrapped in silver foil, which glistens in the sun. I keep them for maybe two or three weeks until they dry out. Thank you. Uh, this is part of a, a series of poems called Desi Self-Care. And yes. I want to ask you about that term self-care because it, it came up in a previous interview. And it's one that I have really mixed feelings about. How do you understand that term? I entirely agree with you. Um, to be honest, the title is a little bit tongue in cheek. I feel like self-care has been, ah, what's the word? Like manipulated probably by the kind of wellness industry or whatever that's called at the moment. I think self-care is not, yeah, true self-care has been kind of, used to mean like doing a face mask or I don't know going to yoga <laughs> which is problematic for me as a Desi woman anyway <laughs> but yeah so I feel like it's about um yeah it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek yeah I love any poem that complicates a word that that seems normal and acceptable and this whole series does that I love flowers my mom was a florist for a short time flowers are really important to me and the thing about that poem is, I don't know, I've always looked at the carnations in the baby's breath and there's something about them that's so desperately sad. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, this, this poem does that work of going, yeah, actually this is, this is kind of the, um, this is the extent of what baby's breath incarnations can do. They can sit in a vase until they dry out and they're part of this broader series that's like, this is my, my quote-unquote self-care this is what I can do to take care of myself. And, and there's, there's so many tiny moments. There's such little things that you're doing. You're going to chemist warehouse. Just there's, there's a dailiness about the series, even though big, big things happen in it as well. Yeah. But at every, every point you're kind of questioning accepted understandings of these things. So I wanted to ask what it felt like when you received this, was this the first publication that you've been in? No, so I was actually, um, I mean, obviously I've been in things when I was younger at university, like the university magazines or online kind of things. But no, this is the first proper, I think, book, I would say, or anthology I've been in. 
So the sweatshop, I was in volume one, Sweatshop Women volume one, which I'm not sure if you've read, as well as this one. Yeah, volume two. But yes, it is, it's scary. <laughs> I think it's very, it's amazingly exciting. And I mean, to hold it in your hands, to see, to see it on the page is very excellent. But also, yeah, I think that when, I think not so much with volume two, but with volume one, I was quite overwhelmed and quite nervous about putting it out there in the world. Did you have a moment of hesitation or even fear? Like, I don't know if I can say this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Especially, um, especially I think some of the, I think some of the other women wanted to put aliases or, or just some people don't put their whole name, which I can completely understand. Um, but yeah, I, I just, yeah, definitely was a bit worried. I think as well worried of the reactions of some of the people in my life as well, <laughs> including mainly my family. <laughs> yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely scary. Very scary. Probably the most scary thing I've done. It's, it can be really terrifying. Yeah. Did you feel like that with your writing when you put it out in the world? I, I had a moment before my chapbook came out last year where I was lying there the night before the launch going, this can't happen. There's no way this can happen. This is a huge mistake. What the hell have I done? And yeah, weirdly, it was my family members that I was most worried about. But my dad and I think my mum too have both read and my brother and sister have read some, most of those books. And I mean, they didn't die from it. They didn't like run up to me and say, this is amazing and congratulations and you're, you're incredible. <laughs> but they, they also didn't say, what on earth were you talking about in that one poem? Sounds like you really messed up. <laughs> so, it just kind of was a non-reaction. I, yeah, I think my family reacted similarly. I mean, they're, they're proud of me and I think they, they do like the poetry. I, but, yeah, I think it was a challenge that, yeah, I think definitely, yeah, my mom was a little bit, I don't think she really enjoyed some of the portrayals in the first, in volume one, but I think she also understood. Yeah, so <laughs> that's the, I think that's the scary thing about putting stuff like that out is how people react to them or read them is not always what you expect or what you intend. You kind of have no control. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's the scary thing about it. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. It, it can also be kind of freeing, I think. But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot wrapped up in that. I'm, I'm wondering too, as we're talking about what it is to claim the title of poet or writer within the sweatshop community, because you know it's it's an old trope that like, oh, I don't call myself a poet that almost every poet has kind of said that. But I'm wondering if there's a particularly sort of, um, if there are particular challenges that Sweatshop is is working through as a group in terms of claiming those those titles. I think, I mean, for me personally, and I think I'm not sure if I can speak to the group, but certainly there is that sense of imposter syndrome or, yeah, I certainly was like, even about coming on the podcast, I was like, oh, what am I going to say? <laughs> you know, I'm not really, I call myself a baby, a baby writer, um, which is maybe not what I should call myself, but it's like this sense of, yeah, not being able to fully acknowledge something or, or recognize or own that. And I think 
yeah, it's something I'm working on. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I don't think I've ever called myself a poet, really, if anything. I'm, I'm not sure why that is, <laughs> because definitely I write poetry. I think there's maybe, I don't know, connotations around what a poet is or how they, how they are, and I don't feel like I fit that. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, not being from the, you know, dominant, you know, part of society, not being a woman of colour and I guess there's also that is added layers to it. I mean, I grew up reading a lot of white writers and that's something I'm constantly trying to unlearn and re-educate myself around. But, you know, that was when I grew up, I was reading, you know, the Brontes and Sylvia Plath and, (laughs) you know, all those types of poetry which I still, I do love, but it's, I think that's maybe part of the challenge. But I think it's important to, yeah, to, to try and, yeah, own myself as that. And I think Sweatshop is really important in doing that. They, we are writers and, yeah, we need to, I guess, say that. <laughs> there was a, a review of the first volume in the Saturday paper where the reviewer said, in a white-dominated literary world, writing the other becomes a political act. Which, I, which made sense to me, but I also thought as I read that, well, it's kind of bullshit that you, that, that writing is necessarily political. Yeah. Um, oh, there's this wonderful poet called, called Aziza Barnes who has a poem about, you know, about her dad asking her, why can't you just write a poem about a flower? Uh, <laughs> um, and just just how just how yeah how difficult that question is yeah I guess I don't really have a, a question to follow that up it's more just sort of a statement that like well I guess my question is do you does it feel political when you're sitting in a room or when you're drafting or does it just feel like writing a poem oh that's such a good question <laughs> it's something I struggle with and something I think about a lot and it's it's not, and I think it's, I've had this discussion with people because especially right now, the world we're living in, I feel like I've got some friends that think they're not political or, or some people who say they're apolitical and I don't have that privilege. And I feel like to be able to say that you come from a place of privilege and I wish, I wish I could not be political but I think that's always going to be projected on me when I write or when I speak or whenever I do anything because I'm not part of the dominant majority and I've I've, I think Michelle Law talks about this maybe that was in the introduction to the first volume but she talks about kind of like there's this responsibility or is it a burden that you face when you're apparently meant to be representing you, you know your community whether or not you are doing that actively or that's being projected on you from the audience or from the dominant kind of narrative of who's reading the book but I feel like when I write I I don't I try not to write for anyone well if I do it's for my other <laughs> my other women of color or, or for my myself I mean I, I try not to think about politics but I guess inevitably it comes up (laughs) whether it's through intention or not Mm -hmm. yeah so I don't I don't feel like it's a burden or a responsibility I I feel like in a way 
I mean, the more voices, the better. And I try to, I try and not think about that when I'm writing, but I feel like inevitably it, it comes out or it's there. Mm. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure if that answers the question though. <laughs> I, it absolutely does. I mean, I think, I think that, I think it would be hugely preferable if you and I were having a conversation that was really focused on uh, craft and form and like, you know, what, what your writing process is like and sort of in this, a vacuum, it would be a little bit dishonest to just focus on that as well because the fact is what this anthology represents is, is writing under a certain type of pressure. And I'm thinking about this, this other review that I read in Cordite about the first volume, which it, it had this, this sort of, this criticism of the, of the volume saying that, you know, was the writing pushing against stereotypes enough? Yeah. And I sort of thought, well, yeah, that, that may be a very valid criticism. At the same time, how much pressure do we want to put on writers of colour how much work do they have to do? <laughs> you know, like, you've got to be representative, but also you've got to complicate the stereotype, but also you've got to be, like, true to yourself and not too political. Like, Jesus Christ, it's a lot Honestly, to do. Uh, it's a lot. Have you read Durga, Durga Chu Bose? Her, she's got a book which I've loved. It's like a memoir of essays, and now I've, for the life of me, forgotten the name of it. <laughs> I'll remember in a second but yeah she writes a lot about it's it's critical essays but she writes about that constant and just when you were talking about that I was thinking about the kind of constant self-censoring that we do because we're fitting in with you know whatever narrative or whatever room we're in I guess and that's the thing about being in the room in the writing room with the other women is that we don't have to do that and we can try and be ourselves. And I'm actually working on a piece at the moment that's meant to be about, I guess, well, the theme that's coming out from it is authenticity and, like, how I sometimes don't feel authentic as a Desi woman and how that's, you know, because I've spent so long, I guess, trying to fit into Australia or whatever, whatever that is. <laughs> it's like not feeling authentic because you've spent so long trying to be something else in so many different ways. So yeah, that kind of constant self-censorship, it's like, how do you write without doing that in the background? I don't really know. Have you been able to find, you mentioned earlier that you had to spend time reading the Brontes and Plath and things like that when you were younger. Have you now found writers who have gone before you, who you were able to look to as, as something of a, Yes. A model, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I feel so lucky. I feel like we're living in a time where there's more and more of that and it's so exciting and I just feel really privileged. Um, we, so, yeah, so I remember the name of the book. It's Too Much and Not the Mood. <laughs> so I really recommend that. I love that book. Um, there's, we had a workshop last year with, uh, after the Sydney Writers' Festival, Elaine Castillo. Uh, I don't know if you've read her book, but it's called America is Not the Heart. And it is honestly the most beautiful book I've ever read. <laughs> I mean, it's probably exaggerating. <laughs> yeah, this is just the way she writes about the migrant experience. And she's, yeah, American, but Filipino-American. And, and just the way she writes about 
the past and the present and yeah anyway it's beautiful but she did a workshop with us um and she's a, a writer that i really admire um alexander chi you you probably might have read his work or i've got a reading list now uh, um, oh no sorry no this is great <laughs> But I um, obviously uh, I was very I, I very much admire um, the work of Ellen Van Nieuwen and Alison Whitaker. They are absolute powerhouses. I think when I read Ellen Van Nieuwen's poetry, I, I yeah I just I'm astounded. I feel like in Australia we're so lucky to be learning from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander poetry and writing, and that's a real privilege. Um, I've got lots more probably, but yeah. But no, definitely I've been actively, I guess actively seeking out um, women of colour, especially black and Indigenous women who have come before. And that's a real source of strength and hope, I guess. Yeah. Would you like to read another from the series? Another poem? Yeah. I'm just trying to think which... Is there one you would like to hear? <laughs> well, I, I love... Because of the flower theme, I love marigold. Okay, shall I? I'll read that then. Marigold. I'm in the low blue mountains to get away from the city. I have my books, my laptop, my writing. The guest house I'm staying at used to be a white boys boarding school. It has a variety of roses. Their smell overwhelms me, filling my lung with, lungs with petals. I asked the owner, an old white guy, to tell me their names. I think maybe I can try to grow these roses at home so I don't have to buy bougie flowers anymore. Children's rose, cardinal red, striped intuition. Feed them with milk and water, I do. But you know, nothing beats a marigold, eh? He scratches the many wrinkles around his eyes with dirty fingernails. Did he just say that because I'm Indian? Do you know you can eat them too? I motion to the homemade granola I'm eating. Edible flowers are a thing now, you know. I laugh inside. Think of the jasmine and marigold malas when I was in India. The star jasmine in Sydney on my walks home from Lewisham Station. Thank you. God, there's nothing better than the names of roses sometimes, like striped intuition. <laughs> That's that's, That's my favorite. I couldn't it. believe it. So good. Yeah, I googled. I actually, when I wrote this poem, I was like, "What are the names of roses?" Are you letting us behind the curtain? Do you remember much about the drafting process for this one? Was there much that was cut out? Yeah, I think there was a lot cut out, <laughs> and probably added in. I think I'm not. I'm not very good at doing the kind of conversation type thing. So I think initially I'd been, it was more of a discussion of what he said rather than incorporating the conversation into the poem. And I think also I had more of my family in it initially and that was kind of taken out. Mm. And yeah, I can't, I can't remember exactly, you know, what was taken out and added in, but, it's definitely rounds of edits, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's quite, a, you probably know that feeling. It's quite an arduous process, editing. Well, I find it very arduous sometimes, but amazing. Like Winnie, our editor, is, she's 
an angel. Like I, she sees things I don't see and she knows, yeah, she just knows how to make, make it so much stronger. So I'm very grateful. Like as much as I'm scared sometimes of getting back the edits, <laughs> it's always such a, it's such a great process to go through. Yeah. I can remember getting drafts back <laughs> and just dreading opening them. And I think even while the draft's away from you, your relationship to the poem will start to change and you sort of think like, oh, God, there's that line sitting in there. I know that's bad now. I know because I've had, you know, a week away from it. Like, I know for sure that's no good. But, yeah, there's nothing more valuable than a second pair of eyes. Do you have a sense of where working with sweatshop might take your writing do you have any particular goals in mind or are you just happy to follow whatever happens next I you know I'm very passionate about change and fighting fighting the man <laughs> and social justice so I mean aside from the work that I do with sweatshop that's part of my other working life I suppose in my personal life as well and it always has been so I think even if the poetry or the writing is not always, as we were discussing before, like specifically or explicitly political, it ends up sometimes, I guess, yeah, I think just adding to, adding to that discourse or giving more people a voice or some, someone to like see who's, I guess, similar to them or might encourage someone to, do something I think initially I was just writing for myself it was more just to and I still I still think I do that but yeah but I guess I'd like to keep keep writing and keep contributing to making more space for communities of color um and yeah supporting supporting them to feel like they can also do more <laughs> if yeah. they want well, that's what an anthology like this does. And, you know, the work of editors like Winnie and movements like Sweatshop, it's like, I don't know, I guess I was reading this just thinking about the people who put together the little one-off runs of journals that lasted for like two issues. But what it meant to me at the time, like that validation, it kept me going, you know, and, and um I imagine it's quite, it's sort of a thankless task a lot of the time, but um, yeah, I just, I just think stuff like this is, is so, so important. And yeah, like I said at the start, the particularly great thing about this is just that it, it's giving the participants more than just, you know, a room and a group. It's like, you're actually aiming to get better as writers and gain skills and things like that which I don't think really happens I don't know of places where it happens no it's very supportive and yeah and and opportunities that come up and yeah and like we will share we have like a amazing whatsapp group <laughs> where we all share like you know opportunities or where other women have won or been nominated for writing awards or prizes or publications and it's so yeah, it's perfect to have that space. So it's, it goes outside the um, the room, I suppose. It, it's it's I've I've made friends from the group who weren't friends beforehand, um, and we're like very close. And I can talk to them about 
my writing I ask for feedback or we talk about books that we're reading or yeah it's just it's so special to have to have that support well maybe just as a last question um what advice would you give if if you could speak to other beginning writers of color about how to approach taking the next step definitely um I think don't ever don't doubt yourself <laughs> I think and have yeah just just show up I mean I was like I said earlier I was really nervous about attending the first um workshop and it was only because of my friend who encouraged me to attend that I did so I feel like yeah it's supporting other women of color and yeah giving them giving them that space and the information that they need and yeah just just going for it despite everything else that might be worrying you or concerning you about doing something yeah I think it's such a it's such a great space I think there are so many opportunities now and there's just yeah I think take up space <laughs> that's what I'd suggest take up space absolutely well on that would you like to read a last poem to take us out yes so this is called breathing west connects I'm driving out to Parramatta on the new West Connects. My therapist said meeting up with friends helps my mental health, but I also think sleeping is good. Sometimes I resent having to explain microaggressions to her, but sometimes I think it works. Last week she taught me that when I feel anxious, I should breathe, close eyes, count to three. I'm not sure I can afford the toll, but it's fresh. The signs over the West Connect say in orange, breathe, close windows, recirculate air.